0: So this whole system is set up to extract money from the insurance companies and then the insurance companies turn around and extract money from the employers and so the system is fundamentally broken and it's broken due to the misaligned incentives by all the parties in it you're listening to culture champions a podcast about what it takes to cultivate exemplary work cultures and master sustainable business growth in each episode Host Zain Hassan sits down with business leaders and experts to bring you in-depth conversations on maximizing value and success in all aspects of your company.
1: I'm super excited today because I've got a guest on that's really, I had the opportunity where even just chatting in advance, so that it's really changed my mindset around a number of things. And I think his story and his team's story is, is extremely inspirational. So with that, John, I want to welcome you to the show. I'm looking forward to it, man. Yeah, we've already been off to a good start. The last 20 minutes has been fun. (laughs) So I think just to frame up for our audience, to give them an idea on Whiteboard and on who you are, can you give us a 60-second overview on who John Tillery is? Yeah, for sure. So I
0: grew up in Chicago, went out to school to LA for about four years, and then went back to Chicago, started in the insurance industry because I got a job there. Did that for about five years. Our agency was bought by AccraSure. And then a best friend in college, him and I decided to start an agency. And he brought in his partner leaders working deals with at the time at like a small mid-sized regional here in Southern California. And so we sold everything we had. Dallas like uprooted his family, sold his house. I liquidated my 401k and we got a small office and I think it was Point Loma. We built our own desk and... Yeah, that's how we started. So not a ton
1: of help, but it was the best decision we've ever made by far. That's awesome. What was the motivation behind starting? What was the, the vision? The vision was really clear.
0: Like the workers' compensation system is fundamentally broken. And that brokenness like bleeds into the way that employees are cared about after they get injured. They get manipulated by attorneys and doctors all the time. There was like a tremendous amount of spinal fusions that like... Man, I forget exactly what it was, but the, apparently there's just doctors just pumping out spinal fusions that didn't need to get done. So they could get paid by work comp. And that's the kind of stuff that like is rampant in the work comp system. The adjusters not knocking any of the adjusters, but they're overworked, underpaid, and they don't really care about a $10,000 claim or $20,000 claim. They're looking for the $100,000, $200,000 claim because that turned them upside down on their underwriting profit. Again, these attorneys that represent the employees, these are not Harvard Law graduates. These are like the bottom of the barrel ambulance chaser attorneys that while an employee might legitimately need an $8,000 settlement for some injury they have, they'll extend it out two or three years because they're looking for a larger permanent disability settlement because they're working on that contingent basis. So this whole system is set up to extract money from the insurance companies. And then the insurance companies turn around and extract money from the employers, And so the system is fundamentally broken and it's broken due to the misaligned incentives by all the parties in it. And then again, not knock at most brokers, but most brokers look at work comp as like the most benign coverage there is. Like you have it or you don't, statutory limits. And so like at that point, you're like, all right, what's your quote look like? You got 10% under, let me take that. But the reality is everything's driven by your claims activity. And so the claims process when it comes to the workers' compensation system is very complicated. And to do that effectively requires a deep, intimate understanding of the problem at its core. And so we've positioned ourselves as like the work comp experts. And I can say very, very confidently that nobody else in the country is doing what we're doing when
1: it comes to work comp. That's Fascinating. And I love it because they're, you know, even I don't know if my audience even knows this, but we are in the healthcare space. And what you just described is how we view the fundamental misalignment with health insurance, insurance brokers, and the structure. And it really requires a completely different approach and proactive risk management and not waiting for renewals and just looking at your price of your renewal. It's sometimes more like a, a multi year strategy that's heavily around educating. It's it's heavily education-based, right? It's about, because even other thing you just mentioned, I don't know anything about workers comp, but I can appreciate it because of the fact that all everything you just said is also rampant in the healthcare space. Yeah. It's like, I look at the healthcare space as like an area that
0: we're looking to go into. But one of the ways that I I know that the work cost space is the most broken place. As soon as someone goes into that clinic, the first question they ask is, did you get hurt at work? shouldn't matter how they treat you but they're like oh workplace injury time to ring up the bill they know they have an unregulated income stream coming from the insurance company it's yeah it's garbage
1: so it's almost like a zero dollar deductible health insurance plan as the from the provider side they know it's going to cover the full side of the bill they know that they are not
0: going to get a question on any of the repeat visits any of the referrals out there physical therapist buddy chiropractic buddies Up until that thing approaches 15, 20,000 bucks. Wow. The adjusters are just overwhelmed with the amount of claims that they have. And so, let's say someone's paying half a million bucks for work comp insurance, like they might have, I don't know, 30 claims a year, something like that, 30 claims a year. That adjuster who's working on that account, if they have a dedicated one, is worried about like the $200,000 claim, the $300,000 claim. And the reason why is most of the damage. It's done on the experience mod, which dictates essentially how much an employer pays in their work comp premium. So look at it as like a credit rating. So the higher the experience mod, the more you're going to pay and work comp premium all takes place. in then the beginning of a claim. And so here in California, a company that pays $500,000, they have this thing called a primary threshold. This is probably getting a little too technical, but it's really important because it does go throughout the rest of the country. It just works a little differently, but legitimately for every dollar the insurance company spends up to that primary threshold on any one claim, they're going to charge back to the client three bucks for every $1 they pay out. Wow. And then does that threshold change by state? It changes by here in California, it changes by the size and scope of the operation. So, the larger, more hazardous a business, the larger that primary threshold. And MCCI states it's 18500 bucks. And
1: for the audience, can you articulate what NCCI means? Oh,
0: yeah. NCI works with, I think, 40 different states, the governing bureaucracy for all things workers' compensation. So, they're the ones that are going to tell you what your class codes are supposed to be, they're the ones that are going to calculate your experience mod. And all the insurance companies essentially fund this operation, which should tell you about where the incentives lie.
1: I believe Florida is an NCCI state where that Florida rates are filed, I think, with the NCCI. That's correct. So, I mean, you set off on this, like notice there's a fundamental problem. Most insurance brokers don't address it at all the way you just described. They don't have the knowledge, they don't have the desire, and they just weren't trained. How did you grow how did you get other people to understand the problem the same way you did when our industry has been in existence for so long, and yet no one had lived to address the problem the same way that, at least to my knowledge, I've met a lot of firms and none that have addressed the problem on workers' comp the way that you guys are? I think, so r- really a,
0: a big reason why this happened is when we first started our company, we had an entire service model that we were planning on utilizing. The company is called businessure. There's stuff that happened that didn't allow us to get that contract. So, we're like, all right, we'll just tear up our business plan and start over. We are writing handwritten letters to like companies around us. And we got a meeting with a company called Con Am that had like 2,000 employees. I think they paid like 2.4 million in premium, but they got a meeting on like a high experience mod. So, we we're working with an organization out of Arizona that kind of functioned as a work comp claims containment company. Okay. They outsourced for their nurse triage. They went to Medcore and then they had claims managers. And so I brought the owner of this guy into the meeting with the risk manager and the meeting went great. The next meeting went great. We didn't end up getting the deal. But after we went through this, I was like, oh, we just went through a really good meeting that like could have been great. Let's double down on this area. And so from there, that kind of like, took us off. So we were outsourcing for our nurse triage. We were outsourcing for our claims management. And since then, we've vertically integrated everything. So we have our own nurse triage system. We have our own claims managers who are all work comp specific. We have our own employee liaisons who are all bilingual that essentially hold the employee's hand throughout their own entire life of the injury and their claim after they get injured. And then we have our own technicians that will actually go treat employees under the OSHA guidelines of first aid on the work site. So I don't know why nobody else is really doing this. We do have some like copycats out here trying to like piecemeal this together, but it's hard to do. We just built our company from the ground up to solve this very unique, very expensive problem. And so most brokers look at work comp like as you have it or you don't. And they're like, all right, let me take a look through your GL policy, your property policy or your cyber ENL, like any of that kind of stuff where I can pick apart what the broker is architected for you and figure out areas where you either need this coverage or you don't need this coverage. And Work Comp just is like, whatever, let me quote it out for you.
1: Yeah. It's, so it's much more transactional for most brokers, whereas you guys are really looking at the systemic changes that you can make within a workforce that will allow that workers comp, and a byproduct of that, which is, we it aligns to our model of byproduct, that is healthcare spend, the byproduct that is how they treat themselves, and, and then of the workers' comp spend. Hundred percent. Because now, hearing you describe it, it sounds like the the correlation is really significant between workers' comp and health. eerily yeah. similar. Yeah. So as you grew, right? So you, had, you and your co-founder was it you and one other person started the business? I have two partners, Jeff and Dallas. And so the three of you all had that same business model and mind when you started Whiteboard. Yep. It's kind of reckless. So Jeff is one of my best friends from college
0: and his partner that he's working with Dallas at the time. And Jeff is like, we got to bring you guys together. I don't know. I don't even know this guy. I don't want to go into business with him. And we end up getting on the phone. Like We call Jeff after him. I love this guy. He seems great. And so we do like 24 hours of total talk time. And I didn't meet Dallas in person before we signed paperwork and went to business together, which is deeply reckless. But you don't regret it. Not at all, man. If my wife and I pass, Dallas is going to be raising our daughter. That's awesome. So like Dallas and his family. Yeah. So it's pretty cool.
1: So when it came to you guys deciding, okay, as you're going to start expanding and looking at people and you envisioned what you were building, how did you think about what the core values of the business were or what kind of culture you were trying to build? We didn't at all. That
0: wasn't on the radar for us. Like, once so I think the first five people that like wanted to work with us we were like, oh my God, you want to work with us? <laughs> It was amazing. <laughs> I don't know if you guys know, but we made these desks like out of like plywood and stuff. So it was like a very like flattering thing. So we kind of just took everybody on, but me, Jeff, and Dallas are good dudes. So, like good folks will typically gravitate towards us and people like that has been helpful, but we didn't really establish core values until probably six years into our business. Okay. Something like that. I thought out there with corny. And so we rifled through a ton of folks on our team. And it's a lot of like, we changed stuff all the time. There was no expectations. We had no oversight. We had nothing. We're all, we're three sales dudes. Yeah. a business with no money behind us. So like we knew how to go out and get sales, which is really good. And we knew how to like deliver our product and do that part. But when it comes to running a business, we made every single mistake that you could absolutely make 100%. So that's been the best thing on the planet, like wins and learns. That's it. That's all it is. You know, every single L is like a way for us. So I'm 36 years old Been doing this for almost a decade, running whiteboard, and I feel very equipped to do a lot of stuff now. And it's only come through like trial and error. We formalized our values Probably three years ago through what's called Entrepreneurial Operating System.
1: EOS. I don't know if you've heard of it. We we operate on EOS. I'm, I'm oh, I love it. Familiar. Okay, you get it. Yeah, really cool. So we had a great implementer. We did it for about
0: four times. And then our COO, Brady, who's a rock star, I was like, I can do
1: this guy. has been on the pay ray, but it's gone really, really well. That's awesome. So as you've gone through, it sounds like you, and I certainly can appreciate because I did every mistake you just mentioned as well. In fact, the big part of you know even having this podcast was to learn from those that have already gone through it and to make sure that we understand how do you retain that culture both when you're growing inorganically and organically really, really quickly uh, and you yeah. guys are organically really quickly. So as you've made those, you talk about those mistakes, if you look back and say that you're talking to some, a younger version of yourself before starting Whiteboard, what advice would you give them? to kind of focus on what's been the most impactful thing is that you realize or mistakes that you made? Probably crystal clear expectations on both sides.
0: Like that's paramount in my mind is like, all right, what are we doing here? Exactly. What exactly are we trying to accomplish here? And how are we going to know if we hit this? That would be a really important one. Another one would be setting timelines, not getting out and over like so many, like just we should stop chasing shiny things. Like, cool idea. That's like my problem. We'll have 100 ideas and 99% of them are hot garbage. One's really good. So you're and the so- visionary in the group, I think, yeah. Yeah, we all kind of that role, but I, I do most of the bad ideas.
1: <laughs> so for the audience in the EOS model, it's the idea of a visionary and then an integrator. Yeah. And the visionaries really come, and I'm the visionary internally, and it's, yeah, you come up with a bunch of ideas. Most of them aren't great, but one or two are gold. And then the integrator is supposed to decide which ones are really gold and when to implement them. for sure. But really they hear all of those ideas. And it's atypical from a CEO, COO kind of model. It's more of there's a role and that role is the visionary, which just even from my personal experience, it took me a while to realize that's okay. I always felt like this need to be more than just a visionary until I got introduced to EOS. And I'm like, wait, there's actually a role for what I do, for chasing shiny objects. (laughs) And and that's okay. That's actually a very valuable role because the one out of 20 ideas that are really good move the business forward. So yeah, I've been able to to that seat. But we made a visionary board
0: for that. Sorry, that was so clunky right there. But yeah, we decided to like not just have me sit there. And then we made a visionary board with Jeff Dallas and I on there. And then Brady's our integrator.
1: So I love it. I mean, as you guys have grown and now when you think about, okay, what kind of person what kind of individual you're looking for, how would you define the type of people you're looking for? Intentional. That's
0: everything. Tell me exactly what you want to be doing every single day. And let's figure out if we can architect your life place here. That's a Truthful. Be truthful to yourself. First and foremost, truthful to your teammates. That doesn't mean just not lying. It means, hey, okay, let's call a spade a spade. Be accountable for your actions. And that's a big one. Accountability is a really, really big one that like, man, you can make so many mistakes if you just own them. Like, who cares? Who cares? Well said. Yeah. Those are probably like the three core ones that we're looking for. Those are the important ones.
1: So now, as Whiteboard grows, how are you guys looking to? What's the vision, and how do you balance the intentionality of Whiteboard with any other hobbies or activities that you personally find interesting? Intentional, yeah. Like, how do we make this thing? Like, we we're growing really quick. We have about forty
0: five staff right now, and we it's just been Jeff and I mostly doing the new business, Dallas. Was running the business, so it was really nice. So we built a really good agency. Just off a couple brokers, we have a couple more that started last year that are doing really well. We're we'll bringing on two more from Marsh, which I'm excited about. And I think we've put ourselves in a position because we don't answer to any shareholders other than ourselves to actually like wake up and do what we want to be doing. So I got to go to yoga every single day, and I go to jujitsu, and go, me and Jeff go golfing most Fridays. So it's like about whatever you're doing, be present, fully there and do it like excellently. Yeah, I love it. Like you don't like just do high leverage activities and know what your strengths are and surround yourself with folks that pick up through weaknesses and take really good care of them and figure out exactly where they want to go in their life and help them do that, help their entrepreneurial dreams, like all that kind of stuff. It's not like the whole thing isn't rocket science. It's just like, hey, actually just give a shit. Try mm-hmm. just giving a shit and it works pretty well.
1: So I love what you just said, because as much as it isn't rocket science, what you just described and went through about really caring about the human being, that's what you, I'm going to articulate what you just said back, but in slightly different words, which is care about the human being, figure out where they're trying to go. And as long as they're aligned help them so that they can get there. And that philosophy is ingrained into what we do, but it's also like As you've grown and you, let's say there's a situation where you have somebody that you realize is maybe they interviewed really well, they made it in. And then like, how do you ensure that you're keeping them accountable for being that kind of a person? And and I guess noticing if it's not, if someone is not a fit. That is always a
0: challenge. It really, it's like that balance of how do you give compassion and grace and not be taken advantage of? That is a seesaw that like, all right, where do we draw the line here? People go through stuff all the time. And so I think like the EOS model has been really helpful for us. Like all of like our management meetings that like filter through everything else, like all the weekly meetings that our team are doing, like creates a tremendous amount of transparency when it comes to expectations. Like, here are the five things that we need to get done to move the needle by next week. Are you good or do we need to discuss this? And so to have that kind of transparency on the expectations has been so valuable. So that's a good way to do it. And the other ones, like, there's just a smell test sometimes. Like, all right, this is not going the right direction. And I think because we've been doing this for a while, like, we can sniff it out. It's, like, relatively easy for us to do that. We'll see. You just start to see patterns. And obviously, you don't want to generalize and assume a bunch of stuff. But that's how we do a lot of stuff. Because that's how humans work, you know? We yeah. typically will take an intuitive feeling and then back it up by, like, facts and logic. But it's
1: always intuitive. Like, you can feel it. We were talking about before we actually started this podcast and, and now this is I'm gonna kind of translate there because in the core, right? We all have this core of who we are. And not if we've tapped into that and really self-reflected on who we are, then we can feel when something or someone doing something that's like outside of our core. It's like that intuitive thought, right? Or that maybe it's an inner monologue, but you're it's that thing tapping on your shoulder to say like you should feel concerned. The still small voice. Yeah. Yeah. There's something there. Yeah. I don't even know if it's always
0: in words. And I do think the issue with that is not, because a lot of times you've been burned, like you've been burned in the past by someone, let's say, you know? Yes. You don't want that to dictate your future. Like we got sued five years ago by a friend of mine, which was like, really, I don't think I've ever felt that stabbed in the back. Like ever. We ended up not paying anything because three weeks before she quit, she said, Hey, I love you. Thanks for giving me some place to wake up every single day. I love my job. I'm so thankful I came out here. So we ended up not paying anything. But the point is, I could see that how like a business owner getting sued, getting taken advantage of over like 20, 30 years, turned into some of my clients. (laughs) who were like, hey, fuck these people, dude. I keep getting sued. I'm trying to take care of them. I totally get how people could get that way. And so I made the decision. It doesn't, you can't burn me enough. It doesn't matter. I'm going to stay open whatever happens. And that doesn't mean to not use discernment. It does mean I'm going to make sure that I'm staying open and not judging this next person by anybody in the past. Moving your skull tissue. Yeah, completely. That doesn't mean to be dumb about it, but it does mean every single person is different. Every situation is different. So to have the discernment of that still small voice, other than that judgmental monologue, I think is a, it's an art, I always say.
1: Yeah, I know. So how did you get so in tune? And I have a feeling this might—this is part of the first 20 minutes. Drugs, dude. Yeah. So tell me more. <laughs> Let's talk more about that. I would say five years ago, I
0: had a pretty profound spiritual awakening on Elix on psilocybin. And ever since then, yeah, it's been like, how do I get back to that place? It's like the most salient sober place that I've ever been. A lot of folks just use the word drugs. And I said that a little tongue in cheek, but these are medicines. And the best way I can explain these medicines is we have a cancer around our soul, which is called the ego. And most folks mistake that for themselves. And because of that fact, if you can get through to that and understand who you are really, that changes your whole perspective on your relationship to yourself, your relationship to your habits, your body, your even your ego, like your relationship to it, like where that stands, what it's subordinate to, and then obviously your relationship to everybody else. And so... Through that understanding of yourself, I think you can then understand people significantly better. And you can do that like psychologically as well, but I do think it ekes into the spiritual place. Like Carl Jung is a good example of seeing like the merging between spiritual and psychological. And really what we're all looking for is wholeness. And that wholeness is really profound once you recognize that, hey, there aren't good. And evil people in the world, there are good and evil inside of each one of us that manifests in different ways. And who knows what you would do if you were in that situation. So it's probably stop judging anybody for doing anything. Just understand that, like that if you were then, you would be doing the exact same thing. And so that right there is a very helpful place to make decisions from.
1: That's probably one of the most profound and powerful comments I've heard in a long time. Well, that's cool. I steal a lot of my shit, man. So yeah, I read a lot. That's
0: the best form of lottery. Yeah, 100%. So yeah, I I try to read a bunch of philosophy and psychology and and some spiritual stuff. And I do think it serves me so I can
1: actually show up and serve other people, which is the whole game in my mind. How do I serve? I love it. So when did the spiritual moment happen? Like when the first spiritual moment and how in tune were you with who you were before that? Not at all. I know conception. I mean, I think
0: we grow up. And I have a two-year-old daughter, so I can see it. She doesn't know. She'll say, hey, I'm Isla," But she doesn't have a self-concept, right? Right. And that's really mostly what it is. It's just a concept of ourselves. But if you look for, like, you know, is there someone back there, like, behind the eyes, sitting there, you're not going to find anybody. And it's hard for people to understand. If I'm not that, who am I? It can get weird. It can definitely get weird, but that whole process of self-discovery is like where all the gold is. So I had that experience five years ago, but before then, like I'm an entrepreneur, I like I, I play basketball, yeah. I'm a funny guy, I'm a mm-hmm. sales homie, like all that kind of stuff. Is you have all these titles about you. And like you go to other people to validate what you think about yourself. Right. Okay, you, you I'm this person, you're not seeing me this way. So I need to convince you. You're looking for confirmation bias, right? Yeah, for sure. At all times. And so going through that experience and then doing my own meditation practice, I've recognized that I'm not anything that I'm feeling. I'm not anything that I'm thinking. I'm not anything that I'm seeing. I'm not my body. Like I'm not any of those things. I have all these things and I get to use them all, but I'm like the thing that sits behind and experiences everything. And that's what we all are. That's all we are. And I think that's not the inner monologue. That thing's watching the inner monologue.
1: Wow. All right. So, this now just I naturally, just because of how much you just described, did it finally change your life? Makes me want to figure out exactly. And I imagine the audience is wondering too can you specify what you went through? What was this process? I'm remiss to talk about it. I'll be honest with you. Okay. That's fair.
0: Yeah. It's a pretty personal experience. I guess what I would say is I can't think of anything more valuable, and it's not for everybody. But if you feel psychologically secure to go in with a trip sitter and a physician and go through that process of psychedelic therapy, not a more valuable thing on the planet.
1: And from what I'm understanding, what it really did was open up and allow you to see you for you, all the different parts of you, and be yeah. aware rather than on autopilot, objectively aware. Yeah,
0: yeah. There's, I mean, every like it's, it's the Matrix, it's Free Guy, all of these. It's Plato's Cave. It's the same story over and over again. So yeah, it's that.
1: So how is that now as it relates to? And you know, so for me, I'm looking at. I'm always trying to be a better father. Love it. Be a better leader, right? And be a, a better spouse, right? So the two, be a better husband to my wife. And when I'm looking at those, it's daily, right? There's daily things. I make mistakes yeah. every day, but I try to lit to be it's about living the example the best that I possibly can and being fully admit the mistakes. How is being a father impacted or the idea of even just what you're doing? Because you have a very deep in tune level of making sure you're intentional in everything you do. So I guess I'm just trying to understand when you look at the idea of your business and the business is one facet, but then there's so many other areas where you're looking to serve other people. How do you think about where you're prioritizing your time other than intentionally? Because it sounds like everything you do is intentionally. Not everything. I wish I was at that level. (laughs) That's the aim. But yeah, how I pray towards my time, it's kind of what
0: I want to be doing. That's like the message I tell everybody is, hey, literally just architect your day to do whatever you want to be doing. And that doesn't mean to be like trivial about it. It means like you got to understand there's probably somewhere that you would want to be in five years. So you got to move the needle on that kind of stuff. But for the most part, like I'm at a place where I get to wake up and do exactly what I want every single day, which is like serve the people around me, enjoy like my life and ultimately keep growing out this tree bigger and bigger so we can serve more people. Which in my mind, that is the game. That's where all the meaning is. That's where all the fulfillment is. I think, especially in the spiritual area and nowadays, like getting money, it's either at godlike status, that's all that matters. Or people are like, fuck capitalism. Look at all the damages it does. And it's
1: not, it's neither one of those. Neither of those, yep. Yeah, money's a byproduct of doing good shit. Well said. I think we're almost trying to about to say the same thing. Which to me, it's always been it's a byproduct of the amount of value that you are contributing, yep. and like how well you're serving other people. For sure, it's not the goal; it's just the byproducts.
0: Yeah, if it's the goal, it's you got some fucked up priorities, and that can cause a lot of damage. That is part of the issue. That's a real problem, right? Unbridled yes. capitalism. Why it's like beautiful. Like, all right, unbridled capitalism. Like, does stuff that is unethical. Like they will get into the politicians through mechanisms about getting the vote. So it's legal. Like they'll write the laws and that is a major issue. Right. But the alternative is like, all right, there's people out there and people have different incentives and want to do stuff like socialism and communism don't work either. Capitalism is just a good mechanism to build wealth. And so it's that balancing act of how that is. So for me, I was like, all right, well, I know what I want to be doing. I know that our like what we've built delivers like radical value to our clients, which is really, really cool. And so they're gonna pay us good money to do that. How do I use that money to double down and keep building, keep providing value, keep serving? And so that's all goes back to the goal. Service to others.
1: It's not about me or you. It's and that's where meaning's found. And so because everything you're talking about is all things that I would call those are profound topics that a lot of people when they're thinking about like how do we they create the culture? Well, a lot of the creating of the culture is, is living, just being yourself, being aware of what you're doing, yeah, right, and being very intentional. And just when you can put your ego to the side to serve others. For us, serving others, we call it having a servant's heart as number one. Yeah, like even no matter how down things are for me, so this feels like a bad day or something is going on personally. Like a dear friend passed away recently. I'm sorry. Man. Serving others has always been the solution for me. It's like when I serve somebody else, I get out of my own head, right? And I can focus on helping someone else. And that doesn't mean serving someone else necessarily in any way this near the same fashion. It could be just serving someone else from a business perspective, but it's helping their business. It's just knowing that I'm helping somebody else. Hundred percent. And that's always been like I guess my default is like, okay, if I'm not feeling great, go serve somebody and then I'll feel better. Love it. Love it. Yeah. That's perfect. That's exactly how
0: this game is set up. It's like, we are always looking for like a good example. Most people, as like, if you had three wishes, what would they be like? I wanna have, never have to look at my bank account. I wanna have a beautiful partner who like, never thinks I'm an idiot. And like a few other things, but that would all be great, but you're really looking for the same thing. We're looking for peace and joy and enthusiasm. Everybody's looking for that, but we think that the things going outside is going to do that for us. But no, 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 no. What actually does that for us is service. Like you asked about now that I'm a father, like how does that do? Like I was reading how to be a good dad, like all the books on it. And I started doing that. I could put it on my way and hey, just pay attention. Just pay attention. Pay attention. Keep other good dads around you that you trust that if something happens, like I had this thing happen. Let me talk to you. That's really like what it is. Just pay attention to what's in front of you and understand it's not about you. Not about me. It's never about me. And just keep doing that. And you will feel happy. You will feel joy. And happy and joy just sound like trite platitudes, but they're not. That's the, what we're all doing at all times, just trying to get back to that state of like youthful happiness where you were like were with your homies when you're like 12 and 14 making jokes and no cares in the world. That's what we want.
1: Yeah. Those moments. So is that when you think about your business partners, is that the definition of the business with your business partners? They are. Like when you look at the idea of, of surrounding yourself with people who are who you want to be, is that kind of how you've looked at building the team? I appreciate that.
0: Yeah, 100%. Like my business partners and my brothers, I love them dearly. Like we've been courted by some companies to buy us like a few times now. And my buddy Jeff said it best like, hey, what are we doing? Like, we're everything's perfect right now. Life's perfect. Like, it's really, really good. Like, we're in a great position to help a ton of people. Obviously, there's a bunch of shit going on in the world. So when I say life's perfect, like that kind of a tough pill to swallow for most folks. But like for us, like it's good right now. And I can't do stuff on the other world. So I'm going to figure out what my sphere of influence is and what I can actually control and fuck the noise. Not that I don't care about it, but I can't do anything about that. So what's in front of us right now and how can we expand that? And eventually that can get pretty big. There's a lot of people on this planet who have grown that and actually done a ton of service. We live inside a miracle. You hear people complain about this, but like this, it's staggering numbers, man. Like 200,000 people every hour being connected to clean water. 250,000 people are being connected to the electric kid. People are being lifted out of abject poverty at a blistering pace, but you don't hear about it. right? And so, yes, there's all this stuff going on in the Middle East right now, Ukraine, all that kind of stuff. But that's been going on for all of human history. It's probably going to continue for all of human history. So as opposed to complaining about it and being sad about it, go try to make the world a better place.
1: I love it. You just go do it. I think the focus on, but the biggest thing is that I take away from what you just said is at the end of the day, what you can control and what you can't control are two completely different things and letting something you can't control impact how you feel and what you do is the opposite of being productive or creating value, whereas focusing on what you can control and making that positive, yeah, it doesn't, uh, what, oh, we can't control, we can't control. Anyways, so there's nothing that we yeah. can do. And sitting around and being stressed out about it, I, there's, I think it was an Adam Sandler quote. It was like, stress is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do. It won't get you anywhere. Yes. Yeah. Perfect. Uh, <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. And that's the exact mentality to me. It's just reminding myself of what I can control and what I can't control. And what I can control is my actions, my behaviors, right? What I'm doing, my time. And my impact, I I can control that by hearing from other people whether or not my impact is meeting what I'm hoping it's meeting. Love it. Yeah. It's perfect, man. Well, it sounds so. you guys have grown really rapidly. I'm excited to have had you on. To me, this is a really good segment to just being able to understand the growth, both the purpose of your business, but so much is revealed through like the fact that to you when you said it's kind of some art, some science, it's really just being you. Right, So it's finding the right leader and then following that right leader. And for you, your team, it sounds like, or you and you're self-aware enough that between you and your team, you guys sound like you've got a great leadership team. So thank you. we will be cheering you on. I have no doubt you guys are going to continue growing and being successful, but it was a pleasure having you on the podcast and I appreciate you sharing your story. Thank you, Zan. I really
0: appreciate it, man. I didn't know what to expect from this. Frankly, I forgot about it until last night. We are coming over to the Kings game. And I'm very thankful we had this conversation genuinely resonate with your authenticity. It's been like a pleasure talking to you. And yeah, looking forward to keeping up with you, man.
1: Absolutely. So, for the audience, one thing I, before we end, if they want to reach out to you, what would be the best? And we'll drop it in the show notes as well. But how would you want them to do so? Just on our website,
0: whiteboardrisk.com. It's the best way to reach me. Yeah, and just go on there and type in. I don't have any social media. I guess I have LinkedIn. Just kidding. That kind <laughs> of counts. Yeah. Okay.
1: It's yes. so on LinkedIn or on the website.
0: Sure. Yeah,
1: that'd All be right. awesome. All right. And for the audience, we'll tune in to you on the next episode.
0: Thank you for listening to the Culture Champions podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. You'll find links to any resources mentioned in the show notes. If you're enjoying our show, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. And if you have someone you'd like to hear on the show or a topic you'd like to see covered, please email pat.davisbryant
1: at risktag.com.